Welcome to Books and Beyond with your host, Alison. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl. No my, Heide my Kiara, and welcome to Books and Beyond Literary Lounge with Alison and Enika. Brought to you from our home studios. Kiara Enika. Kiara Alison. Well, look, in the news over the last week, um, the 2021 Booker Prize for Fiction has been announced. And the prize was order, um, awarded in the end to Damon Galgut for his novel, The Promise, um, which um, carried a prize fund of £50,000, which is not a bad little earner for that. <laughs> so huge congratulations to Damon. Absolutely. And he's been, I think, shortlisted a couple of times or long listed. So yeah, wonderful that he is in the um in the in the top chair. Um yeah. now of course when it was announced it went straight to the top of Auckland Library's most requested list. So um yeah, you may be waiting a little while to read it, but um I, I know I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm so looking forward to reading this one. Me too, me too. Yeah, I think I'm close to the bottom of the list, but that is absolutely okay. But it's nice, going to be nice into the bookers dozen, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, what have you been reading this week, Inika? Ah, well, this one I actually read a few weeks ago, but I've been looking forward to talking to you about it. Um, it's called Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism by Amanda Montel. And um, it's a nonfiction book that was published just this year. Um, it's available in ebook and e-audio book as well. Now, um, you might recall, um, if you're a regular listener, that I reviewed Amanda Montel's first book, which is called Word Slut, A Feminist Guide to Taking Back the English Language, um, last year. Um, now, that one looked at how the patriarchy is sort of baked into communication of all types of forms and, more importantly, how to get rid of it and how to notice it and um, and cut it down when you when you hear it. So, in this second book, which is really, really timely, um, cultish, she's tracing the shared linguistic patterns and lexicon of cults and also the what she calls the cultish or the cult adjacent. Oh. Yeah, so she starts with you, I guess what you call probably a classic cults. Um, she looks at the language used by sort of suicide cult leaders like um, Jonestown's infamous Jim Jones, you know, who was such an amazing orator and of course had this mm. very manipulative language that, that ended up in everybody drinking the Kool-Aid um, yeah. or whatever other Raro type drink it what ended up being. Um, and then she goes on a bit deeper. She goes into pseudo-religions such as Scientology. She looks at multi-level marketing companies. Um, um, she looks at fitness franchises, which you might not think of as a cult, but she, she puts a pretty good case forward for that, <laughs> certain ones. <laughs> and even influential um, social media gurus. So she, you can see from this that she draws a very wide circle in her definition of cultish, but she does make a really good case, I think. Um, she really is looking for those, um, those organizations, um, that are making bank really out of well-being and also that constant push to reach to be the best you that you can be. You know, she's, she's looking for cultish language and vocabulary in the cultures of, um, fitness, um, outfits such as CrossFit, Soul Cycle, Bikram Yoga, you know, all of these have come up and down in popularity over the years, um, mostly coming out of the US. Um, and she does have a US focus in this book. Um, 
she's also looking at um, multi-level marketers, um, what I would call wellness products slash dream purveyors, you know, um, once, uh, more recent ones. So she does look at the history of those like um, Amway and uh, Tupperware, but she's looking more, more specifically at the more recent ones like Arbonne and um, LuLaRoe leggings, which is one that I don't know, I haven't really seen that here, but apparently that's like a subscription legging kind of jobby. Oh, that must be. <laughs> I know. Yes. The things you can, you when can sell will to it, people. When will it end? Yes. <laughs> well, she's, um, she really interestingly puts it all into the um, those, those um, organizations as taking up space where formal religion used to sit for many people. Oh. Um, yeah, and sort of filling a vacuum and a void in people's mm-hmm. lives. So quite interesting. Um, she looks at Instagram spiritual gurus um, and natural living, that kind of natural living ethos and how that kind of slams up against freedom of choice and mm. then how close it can get to QAnon, anti-vax and that sort of conspirituality, as she calls it. So conspiracy. Very, very interesting yeah. and quite um, current, really topical, isn't it? Very, very topical, very topical. And um, she's got her own sort of skin in the game as well. So she lives in California, so she's really close to what I would call the cult epicentre. Um, yeah. um, her own grandparents were actually members of a notorious Californian cult called Synanon, and her father managed to escape from their clutches when he was 17. He was very bright, bright guy and... Um, kind of like had a little bridge to get out. Um, But she's also discussing as well just how attractive and appealing that those sorts of organisations or communities can can sound through their language and how they can appear. Um, And she looks at it in terms of, particularly in terms of types of upheaval when life and society is being shaken up and communities might be divided or on either sides of um, of the of of arguments, yeah. So she sees it as sort of ripe. It's a it's a time, particularly now, which is ripe for this kind of thing to to come in and have influence. So very very timely. Um, now I read this probably I would say actually this might be more than a month ago now. It did spark me into a deep dive into all things cult. Um, Netflix is a great place to go and find mm. some and some great cultish documentaries. Um, and of course some pod, there's so many podcasts out there about cults and other books too um we you know certainly it made me i did think about this book again when you know seeing the anti-vax and anti-government protests Mm. going on this um week um but getting a bit more um loud and visible um yeah this book's really a good reminder of the real power of language and how the words and the rhetoric and um the references we use can have such far-reaching effects and that can be for good or for ill it can be intentional or it can be unintentional yeah we we just need to think carefully about the words we use and um yeah that's really really interesting um and i was thinking especially because we are living in such an uncertain age and you know people are vulnerable and people are searching often for either the answer or um you know maybe if i wear those leggings i'll um you know my life will change or or often it's starting a particular diet if i eat like um the caveman ate you know do that for a year then life will change and yeah very very interesting isn't it yeah highly recommend this one yeah oh I'm I'm going to look into that. Um, thanks so much for that. Do you know it sort of segues 
beautifully, and this was unintentional actually, <laughs> into um, something that I've just read, which I really enjoyed. So if we go from cults um, to corporate America, which has its mm. own cult-like aspects, particularly <laughs> in this book, um, this amazing novel that I've just finished, it's called Black Buck, and it's just published just in the last couple of months. And it's available in the adult fiction section of the libraries. So Black Buck um, is a debut novel by a 29-year-old writer um, from Brooklyn, New York, and his name is Matteo Ascaripor. Uh, so now um, Black Buck, it's a New York Times bestseller, and it's received rave reviews. It's a, a biting satire about capitalism and race in, in the USA. And um, interestingly, it's been compared to classics of the genre, uh, genre such as, um, remember that film Sorry to Bother You by Boots Riley? And then um, perhaps more well-known, the Jordan Belfort memoir, The Wolf of Wall Street. Ah, yes. Um, which was made in, into the well-known film. So now one thing I love about it is it's um, a coming-of-age novel, which is Ooh, kind of my thing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's quite irresistible. But it's interesting. It's presented as a self-help manual, um, oh. which is very current as well. So our narrator, the narrator of the book, Darren, um, tells us, I am a black man on a mission. No, I am a black salesman on a mission. <laughs> and so... Darren's writing from his penthouse, so I'll put that in inverted commas, um, but it is a penthouse, overlooking Central Park, beautiful view. And um, Darren says that he wants only to give other black people the tools they need to fulfil their dreams. He's um, an ambitious black man who's always working in two registers in life. It's very interesting. Mm. He's one in one, he's playing along and, um, you know, as the dutiful and polite black American. Mm. And the other one, he's playing the long game. Mm. He knows that his quest to conquer corporate America is a marathon. It's it's not a sprint. And it's it's a game. So the books, um, as well as this really interesting story and fast-paced story, it's full of side notes such as, reader, watch closely and take notes. Sales isn't about talent. It's about overcoming obstacles, beginning with yourself. <laughs> so there's lots of sort of bits of kind of down-home advice. Um, and But you're not quite sure if he's sincere or if he's just if this is just a massive parody. Right. Uh, but Darren says, every day is deals day. It <laughs> sort of does sound a bit cultish, doesn't it? So now we're introduced at the beginning of the book to our narrator, Darren. He's young, gifted and black, and um, he's 22. And he's pretty much content with his life as a um, barista at a busy Manhattan Starbucks okay. uh, franchise. So, and he's got a lovely long-term girlfriend called Soraya, and she's the child of immigrants from the Middle East. And um, Darren's mother 
who he lives with. She's worked her whole life in a factory um, and she thinks that Darren should be aiming higher and doing justice to his talents and abilities, which you can understand. Um, Now, one of the um, the regular customers at the Starbucks um, shop, cafe, is um, the CEO of a tech startup um, and he sees Darren's potential. So the CEO, whose name is Rhett, I keep thinking Rhett Butler, (laughs) but um, Rhett becomes determined that Darren should come and work for him on his sales team and Darren eventually agrees. So um, and now what is interesting, you never really get um, truly work out what they are actually selling, which sort of (laughs) reminds me of a cult too because it turns out they're selling a dream basically of wellness, but... So Darren, he leaves Starbucks and he joins this all-white, ambitious sales team who are horribly racist and aggressive. Um, And the startup has a ruthless dog-eat-dog culture. And uh, poor old Darren undergoes an absolute week of hell training in this hostile environment. And so the management at the, the startup, they rename him Buck um, because of his Starbucks association. And but um, so while treating him horribly, they quickly begin to exploit him as the the face of diversity for the company. Mm. You know, so they they want stuff from him, but then you know, it's a it's a hard trade for him. Mm. So Buck changes his entire personality to succeed at sales and he shapes a new identity um, transforming himself into becoming this sort of single-minded money-driven sort of coke um, sniffing that's not the right word is it Um, uh, you know and he becomes um, sort of someone that his family and his friend they no longer recognize mm. so his girlfriend is saying what's happened to you you know his mom um the lodger in their in their house um it's it becomes quite a crisis and um then a tragedy unfolds and um so this crisis then leads but to an initiative to help and advise other people of colour to enter and hopefully thrive in the American corporate world. Mm. So it's quite, quite interesting. Um, And so then some people accuse Buck of starting a cult himself. So Mm -hmm. it all gets very interesting and very, um, it sort of reads like a thriller, actually. Mm. Um, So it's powerful. It's well written. I found it profound and very thought-provoking um as i said full of twists and turns very pacey um and it really portrays many of those sort of ghastly reasons why america struggles when it comes to employing a diverse workforce Mm. and all the you see all the cultural appropriation the microaggressions overt racism that you could imagine um I've got to be honest, it was a difficult read for me at times. It's quite confronting, but mm-hmm. it's one of those ones that white folks should read, I think, mm. because it's it could not be more relevant in um, our world than mm. it is today. And, you know, if I was a high school English teacher, I would definitely assign this to my class because there's so much to unpack. Sounds so juicy, yeah. It's good. Yeah. It's a good one. 
reminds me a bit, it sounds a little bit like the sellout and a little, and you know, yes. some of the same themes. Actually, that's a really good point. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that, but I know what you're saying. Which I, I love that book. Oh, so yes. Good. Oh, well, um, my one has, is a bit different from that. It is a, <laughs> it is a, a bestseller, definitely. Um, so I just uh, whipped through uh, Malibu Rising by <laughs> Taylor Jenkins Reid, and that was published this year, 2021. It's available in adult fiction and as an overdrive ebook. So you may have heard of this one. Um, Taylor Jenkins Reid profile has been going up and up and up in yes. the last few years. Um, she's She's got a lot of stories under her belt. Um, this is... Um, I think probably her biggest to date. So the main story of Malibu Rising um, is set in California in 1983, over 24 hours on the night of the party of the year. So it's held every August, so in the you know mid, mid to end summer in um, the US at Nina Reeves' place. It's an insider's do. It gets bigger every year. There's Hollywood movie producers. There's brat packers, rock stars, DJs drug dealers, models, local mm. wannabes, all in the mix and in the pool and also in the spa with, you know, not one but two members of a Brit synth band that very <laughs> closely resembles Duran Duran. So this is a saucy novel. Oh, yes. <laughs> very enticing. <laughs> <laughs> so Nina is the eldest of four adult siblings and they're from a famous family. So the dad is Mick Reaver, who's a singer who fell in love with their mum, June, when he came to Malibu in the 60s um, and um, then he had the big time as a as a, um, a pop star. Now he still loves her but he can't really turn a blind eye to the ladies when he's out on tour. I mean that's a common story isn't it? Yep. So Mick is carrying on with multiple women while the family and the kids are all carrying on back home in Malibu without him. Now, Mum June is strong for her kids and she's holding it together while he's away. But when he leaves for good this time, it does push her over the edge. And the oldest daughter, Nina, has to step up while she's still a kid herself. She's caring for everyone, including Mum. And she ends up leaving high school to take on work to make money for the family. So she starts by overseeing the family's seafood restaurant. She then goes on to become a competitive surfer. And then she's discovered as a rising star model, um, sort of like Cheryl Teagues, if you remember her. Yeah. I'm sure we all do. Absolutely yep. beautiful. Yes. Um, now, don't ask me how she manages to fit all of these jobs <laughs> in, but um, it does work in with the wider plot, I guess. <laughs> now, her bro- next brother down, Jay, is also a world-class surfer. Next one is um, Hud. He's a photographer who specialises in surf shoots. And there's kid sister Kat. She's 18. She's trying to get out from under her kind of siblings' shadows, but she's not sure if she's herself ready for the spotlight yet or a boyfriend, importantly, in the in the plot. Um, now, they're all, of course, hot, gorgeous. Um, there's all these ex-current and prospective partners in the mix too. Now, every second chapter, you go back in time to find out more of the Reaver family backstory and how they all got to this this one night in 1983. Um, you see Malibu grow from this rustic beachside community into what's becoming a sort of newly minted playground for the rich and famous. Now, if you know the song Boys of Summer by Don mm-hmm. Henley, this book is, you'll be hearing that in your oh, head. You know, it's I got love this, that song, actually. It's, it's so evocative, <laughs> yeah. So it's got the, you know, the sunnies and the tan, the jeans, the sun bleached hair and the, the whiff of the coconut oil oh, yeah. and, of course, the beach. Um, now, the party at the heart of the book is this 
total mess of beautiful people and music and cocaine and pash-ups and fisticuffs. And it's really just the ticket for if you've been stuck in lockdown and it's been boring as hell. Yeah. Oh, it sounds fabulous. Just the pure escapism. It's what it's we need at the moment, exactly isn't it? That's what it is. It is pure escapism. Now, um, I really loved Daisy Jones and the Six, which was her last book. Um, her three most recent releases have all been set in California. So we've got The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo in 60s Hollywood. Daisy Jones is kind of 70s Fleetwood Mac Sunset Strip vibes. And um, this one, of course, is further along the Pacific Coast Highway, mm-hmm. further north and, um, and further along the timeline. They're all coming to the big screen or small screen probably, I think probably TV series. So these are ones to look out for on the small screen as well as on the library shelves. They're going to be lush, bingeable treats for the eyes for Mm. sure. I can just see all those beautiful costumes and settings. Um, Now, Taylor Jenkins is really good at sprinkling Easter eggs and sort of world boarding through her books. So Mick Reaver, the dad in this book, has a bit part in Daisy Jones and he's actually one of Evelyn Hugo's seven husbands as well. And apparently there's some other previous characters in the mix at the party, uh, although I didn't pick those up. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> I was reading too fast. Um, I didn't enjoy this as much as Daisy Jones, but it is a fabulous bit of escapism. It's it's light but not too fluffy. It doesn't take itself too seriously. It does feel a bit like a parody at times of like an 80s soap opera cross with, say, Sweet Valley High with a little <laughs> bit more TNA. <laughs> <laughs> Santa Barbara, Jackie Collins yes. for a new generation, I would say. Really not a bad way to spend an afternoon at all. Um, it is very popular, like I said. So, um, But there's actually lots of copies and they're in lots of different formats. And it's a quick read. So, um, you know, if you haven't, get it on your holds list now and hopefully you'll get it by the end of summer. Definitely it's those end of summer vibes. Yeah. Oh, it's fabulous. I'm just thinking of the hairstyles, actually. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, hairstyles. Yeah. You got me at, at here. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Oh, fabulous. Well, look, I've been reading uh, also an American book, but one that's probably m- more serious and perhaps more thought-provoking. And it's a graphic novel um, just published uh, called The Secret to Superhuman Strength by the famous Alison Bechdel. And so it's available in hard copy in our adult graphic novel section, but also as an overdrive slash Libby ebook. So um, oh, I have enjoyed this so much. So now, for those that um, don't know, Alison Bechdel is an acclaimed graphic mem- memoirist. I can't say that word today. Yeah. I should have practiced that, but I, I didn't. I'm sorry. So anyway, she writes memoirs, and and this is her third graphic memoir. And you know, on a personal note, or to be honest, I think this one's her best. Mm. Actually, she's written in this book a deeply layered personal story about selfhood, self sabotage, which is a a big deal for a lot of people, Um, mortality, addiction, bliss, wonderment, and the the concerns of a generation. Now, I must point out that she was a child in the 1960s and 1970s. So it's quite an extraordinary chronicle. It's very funny um, and it's very sad. And it's about the conundrums that we all grapple with as we look for our our true place in the world. So now, 
um, and I didn't know this about Alison Bechdel, but all her life she'd search, been searching for an elusive secret, and it's the secret to su- superhuman strength. Mm. Um, and she's looked at it, looked for it in her favourite books, um, the lives of her heroes. She tried celibacy. She's tried polyamory, activism, therapy, and in an obsessive way, she's looked for it in exercise. Mm. So she um, illustrates and writes about um, skiing, running, karate, cycling, yoga, weightlifting, the Jane Fonda workouts of the 80s. Oh, I remember those. Yeah, you name it, though, she's tried it. And But what she's discovering, and a lot of people will relate to this, as she's getting older, her body isn't getting any stronger um and the world um she's finding it's overwhelming it's changing um so she starts to ask herself um and this is a a quote um are cantaloupe sized guns all the person needs (laughs) so do we need arms that look like watermelons i don't know um perhaps we do um so also and this is something that as a lot of people will relate to, even though Alison Bechdel had been a hugely successful graphic novelist for decades, really, in her mid-50s, she's begun suffering from the, a real sense of dread and she began asking herself where her creative joy had gone. And um, ultim- I won't tell you what happens, but she she's fine or she gets on a path and to find out what she's actually seeking, but not where she expected that she might find it. Mm. So, Hint um, hasn't got a lot to do with Jane Fonda's 1980s <laughs> workouts. More the pity? No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, it's really interesting. She recounts the sort of exercise fads that have swept the Western world for, for decades from um, the early days of the guru worship of Charles Atlas oh, yes. um, through running, you know, when that became a thing, biking, hiking, feminist martial arts, which I'd never heard of, um, yoga, mountain climbing. Um, and she, she says about herself, I've heard of after almost every new fitness fad to come down the pike for the last six decades. <laughs> so it made me start to think, I wonder if she's got into those leggings, you know, the leggings that, mm-hmm. that change your life. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, this book is is about much more than just exercise, really. Her work um, always sort of encompasses multiple interlocking themes. And she um, there's a lot about her emerging gay consciousness, um, the connection between nature and inner, inner meaning, um, a lot about the transcendentalists um, who were hippies um, in the, the 1800s. Yeah. And um, she compares her own pilgrimage to that of Margaret Fuller, who was um, in the 1800s one of the most important American feminists of her day, um, philosophers philosopher, journalist, literary critic. And um, this, I learned a lot about that New England intellectual community who were known as the Transcendentalists, mm-hmm. um, who included Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau, who I was just mentioning to you earlier. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah with his Walden. Um, 
she also compares her story a bit to Jack Kerouac um, and his stories become really entwined in these pages with with Bechtel's story. Mm. It's, but it's just beautifully done. Her huge intelligence and um, real self-deprecating humour, they, they sort of um, shimmer actually through these beautifully expressive drawings and there's so much that's going on in the book she's got the family stuff mm. um the her parents had a very interesting and tragic time of it um this professional is romantic cultural spiritual all this sort of stuff that's happening you can really see how how she did become overwhelmed mm-hmm. and um how she's had to learn to accept her looming mortality, um, you know, the thing that's that's waiting down the track for all of us. Mm. Um, and so she decides to, to just stop the struggle. Um, and, you know, that decision is one that seems so simple, doesn't it? And yet it's um, one of the, the hardest things that we can do. So true. Um, yeah. So it's thought-provoking. It's absolutely beautiful. I think she's a really important creator, but um, what I loved about this uh, this graphic novel compared to her others, or mem- memoir, I should say, graphic memoir, um, the divine um, illustrations, they're coloured this time with a, oh. um, a beautiful watercolour wash. Um, it's quite vibrant and inviting um and actually i discovered later that it's actually her partner who who did the coloring in or the the um the watercolors and you can sort of see the love that's in those uh illustrations so beautiful i'd really recommend this this one it's um really something and it gives you a good potted history of where we've been and, and where we're going. Last so, 50 years, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, look, once again, I think we've run out of time. So <laughs> really just want to say thanks so much for tuning in to everyone. Take care and be kind to yourselves. Hi, Ra. Ka kite anō. 